our emotions are data, not directives. So what I mean here is, you know, if I feel angry, that angry is data that something that's important to me is being threatened. It's not a directive. In other words, just because I feel angry doesn't mean that I need to have it out with someone. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Welcome back to the Mind Valley podcast. I'm so excited about our guest today because she is a constant topic of conversation at family dinners. And the reason is because her book, Emotional Agility, is so absolutely amazing that at my family dinners, we constantly often end up speaking about Susan's work. Now, let me tell you about Susan David. Firstly, if you happen to be driving, remember this website where you will be able to get all the resources that this this podcast is going to cover. Susan david.com, S-U-S-A-N-D-A-V-I-D.com. I'm sure we all know how to spell Susan. You all know how to spell David. It's exactly that.com. Okay. So that's the only, only link you have to remember. Now, Susan David's TED Talk has received more than 8 million views. It is an amazing TED Talk and I recommend you watch it. And it's all about how to go from emotional rigidity to emotional agility. She has been selected by Amazon. Well, her book has been selected by Amazon as a best book of the year. CEO Reads, which is another website that ranks books, selected her book as an editor's choice. Forbes recommended her book as one of the Forbes recommended book for leaders. And she's an Axiom medalist. Susan is a remarkable, remarkable person. And not only that, she's also a faculty at Harvard Medical School, and has done an enormous amount of research and writing on the topic of emotional agility. She's a frequent contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. And her book, Emotional Agility, hit number one on the Wall Street Journal. She is going to be walking us today through four concepts to help us get unstuck and embrace and thrive in work and life. So welcome, Susan David, to the Mind Valley Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. And I'm just delighted to be with everyone today. Susan, let's just get a sense of bearing. Where are you right now? I'm in Boston. Nice, nice. Is that where you live? Uh, yeah, I live here. You can you can hear from my accent that I didn't master the Bostonian accent. Um, I'm originally from South Africa. I've lived in New Zealand, in Australia, and Boston is now home. So random facts, guys. Um, South African authors are taking over Mind Valley. Right now, as I'm, as I'm doing this interview with Susan David, uh, Roland Strauss, who's a South African author, former Miss World winner, a medical doctor, is teaching a confidence class on Mind Valley. Last quarter, I just checked the stats. Our number one program was 10X by Lorenzo Delano, who is also from South Africa. And I'm about to fly to New York next month to film with May Musk, Elon Musk's mother, um, her new program also from South Africa. What is it with you South African people? How are you so damn talented? (laughs) South Africans get around, but you know what, Vision, I think a huge part of it is, and and I'll speak about this a little bit in terms of my work, but I think a huge part of it is um, growing up in a country that has been very complex and that has had a very complex history. And so, you know, speaking for me, so much of my work has been an exploration of sense-making 
through my childhood and through growing up in this context. And it was, it's very much this context that gives light to the work that I do. And where did this interest in human emotions come from? So beautiful question, twofold. The first is, as I mentioned, I I grew up in uh, South Africa. And when I was a child, I was born as a white South African into a country that was uh, committed to apartheid legislation. And really, when I say committed to apartheid legislation, this was at every level of our society. It was what bench someone could sit on, what what, um, cinema someone could go to. And so I grew up in this environment, and I'll just give you one example of what this experience was like, but that feels so palpable. You know, we just had uh, International Women's Day, and it would not be uncommon in South Africa for there to be domestic workers in people's houses. And apartheid legislation basically forbade one of these um, individuals who was working in someone's house from living in that house with his or her own family. And so it would not be unusual for someone to have a newborn baby to leave that baby with extended family or even strangers hours away uh, to come and then live in this community where they were like looking after a family. And you might have a mother who would simultaneously be expressing her own breast milk, throwing it down the toilet and then feeding the baby that she was looking after formula. And I describe this story because there's no way you can grow up in a context like that as a small child and not be just as the reality as you start to grow up, as it starts to dawn on you, the simultaneous heartache and then also the denial, because it's denial that makes 50 years of racist legislation possible while people convince themselves that they are doing nothing wrong. So, Vishen, I think the first thing is this just growing horror that I had as a child in the country of my birth. Um, The other thing that I would say to this is that I had this growing awareness. And then when I was around 15 years old, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He was 42 at the time. And I described this a little bit in my TED Talk on emotional courage. Um, This experience of, I, I still remember to this day, my mom coming to me and saying to me to go and say goodbye to my father. And so I put my backpack down. I'm this little girl. I'm about to go off to school. And I put my backpack down and I walk through the passage of our home. And I'm small and I open the door and my father's lying in his bed. And it's literally hours later he would die. And I remember going into his room and his eyes being closed, but like me knowing in my heart that even though his eyes were closed, that I was still seen by him because he had always seen me. And I kiss him goodbye and I say, you know, tell him that I love him and and I go off to school because my mother's trying to keep life normal. And the reason that I tell the story, Vision, is because it was so powerful for me, both this thread of my work, which is, you know, I can get all academic and all nerdy and all data-driven, but the thread of my work is about seeing and unseeing, about denial versus seeing, about how we see ourselves, about how we see others, and how the way we see is 
so profoundly important to the health of us as individuals, but also our parenting and our communities. So that's the first you know, thread that comes through. But the other reason that I share the story is because my father dies on a Friday and on the, on the Monday, again, my mother's you know, grieving the love of her life and she's got three children and she wants to keep things as normal as possible. So she sends me off to school on the Monday, now two days later. And I had the most extraordinary experience of having literally the love of my life wrenched away from me on the Friday and then going back to school and feeling like, you know, the math and the science and the history, the biology, and and people would say to me, how are you doing? And I would say like, I think I'm okay. And it felt so striking to me, especially in the past experiences that we've been in, which is we all become, you know, the masters of being okay. Because the world itself seems to often invite an unseeing. The world often seems to invite us to just be positive or just be grateful or just be happy. And while I'm not anti-happiness, this is a kind of forced false positivity that actually makes us more fragile. And the last part of that story, I know I'm giving a long story to what was a very small question, but but I think it's important to my work. I had this experience vision of going from the May when my dad died to now July and September and November and, you know, being strong and being praised for being strong. But in truth, I was struggling. I was 15. I started to become bulimic because I was just unable to bear the weight of my grief. And one day I was sitting in English class and there was this extraordinary teacher who handed out blank notebooks to the class. And she had this invitation, which was to the class, and it's an invitation that I want to extend to everyone listening right now, everyone with us. She had this invitation and she handed out these notebooks and she said, write, tell the truth, write like no one is reading. It was so powerful. It felt like, yes, it was an invitation to the class, but actually it was an invitation right to me. In that moment, I had what felt like a revolution because so many of our revolutions are born of micro experiences. And for me, it was this invitation to stop trying to pretend I was okay, stop trying to be fake force positivity, and to literally show up to the messiness of my grief and my pain and my longing and my loss. And so what starts is a remarkable correspondence. And it is a correspondence with my own heart. And it was also a correspondence with this teacher. Every day I would hand in this journal that I had written in. She was so extraordinary because she would write back to me, but she would write back in pencil. And many years later, literally a few years ago, I reconnected with her and I asked her about this. And she said to me, I wrote back in pencil because it was your story. You were crafting your story. I was a witness to your story, but you were crafting it. And so I would write to this teacher. She would write back in pencil. And it was so profound. And so, you know, I know we're going to be talking about practical strategies, but this is the foundation of my work, which is not quickly jumping to outcome and 
process and fixing. It's it's actually this deep experience of seeing and becoming. I see. That's a beautiful story. So Susan, in the interview you gave in Time Magazine, there's a beautiful article that that you wrote on Time Magazine. This was on September 6, 2016. And you said something really interesting. You said there are five emotions that we carry with us and they have stayed with us for an evolutionary reason. I'm curious for you to explain this. And the five emotions you said are anger, sadness, fear, contempt, and disgust. Could you explain why do we have these five emotions? So if we think about many of the narratives that have existed around emotions in modern society, uh, what these narratives do is either on the one hand say that emotions are bad. You know, so this whole idea of come to work and leave your emotions at the door is an example of that narrative. Um, Another narrative is the narrative that says the only emotions that are good are the so-called positive emotions. These emotions like joy, um, happiness, you know, experiences of gratitude. And what I do in a very important where for me and my work, because it's foundational to my work, is for many years, and I'm talking literally like two decades, I've been challenging this idea that our emotions are good or bad, positive or negative. There is a real struggle that we get into when we start taking these normal, natural human experiences, things like grief or anxiety or sadness or loss or whatever that emotional experience is. And we start now labeling it with a secondary emotion. So we all have these type one emotions. It's like, I feel sad. And then what we start doing is we can start layering in secondary emotions, what I call type two emotions, which is an emotion about the emotion. We start saying, I'm sad, but I shouldn't be sad because I've got it good compared to most people. Therefore, you know, I now feel guilty that I'm sad or I feel unhappy that I'm sad. So what starts to happen is we start getting into this hustle with our emotions, literally um, jostling with and fighting and judging and and pushing against these difficult emotions. And so when I described this in Time magazine, I was really just referencing this foundational idea that is not my idea. It's an idea that was proposed by Charles Darwin. And what Darwin describes is that these difficult emotions have actually evolved for a reason. And the most obvious example that people might give is like, yes, if you're you know, on a savannah about to be attacked or you're under threat. But, but if we think about it, our emotions have evolved for a reason. And that is that they, number one, help us to communicate with other people. When we know that someone is upset, when someone is sad, then we are able to connect with that person's needs and values. But more than that, our emotions actually help us to communicate with ourselves. And so they actually become a foundational part of our ability to adapt and thrive in a complex world. And I just want to, you know, the, the, the nerd in me wants to clarify that, you know, there, there are different arguments as to in psychology as to whether there's five core emotions or seven core emotions or more than this, or whether they are even core emotions after all, and whether actually, you know, we experience emotional complexity. But what is clear is that regardless of how we 
segment this out, that there is a whole swath of emotions that are, number one, normal, should not be judged, should not be hustled with, they are normal. And number two, they help us to adapt. And that when we refuse to connect with the signals of our emotions, we might on the face of it say, oh, well, I'm grateful and I'm strong and I'm, you know, I'm just going to be positive. But actually what we know over time is this becomes a recipe for lower levels of well-being, lower quality of relationships, lower resilience, and overall high levels of fragility. So let, let's look at these five emotions, okay? So some of these, it's pretty easy to see why why we carry them with us. Disgust, of course, it, it prevents us from, to use a disgusting example, eating our own vomit, which we sometimes <laughs> see dog cats do, right? So it, it, keeps, it keeps our body healthy in a way. It prevents us from poisoning ourselves. Would, would you agree? Yeah. I mean, disgust, disgust is a social emotion. Disgust uh, allows us to get a sense of whether something feels completely discordant with who we are or, you know, what might be important to us. Okay. So that's disgust and then fear. All right. Fear can keep us safe, right? If we, we were in the wild and we see a wild animal coming towards us, the fear would cause us to take action and run or climb a tree, right? So that's where fear yes. comes from. Yes. And, and fear when you are about to give a presentation might highlight that you feel unprepared for the presentation. Fear right. when you need to have a difficult conversation, might flag to you that there's stakes here, that this relationship is important to you. Okay, and then there's anger. So anger, again, it can be a defensive emotion. You're in war or someone is attacking you. You get angry to defend yourself. Is there, are there any other uses for anger? There's yes, there's multiple. I mean, if we think of if we think of most of the change that has happened in the world, uh, most of the change that has happened is because anger will often signal that a value of ours is being threatened, that it feels like there's a level of injustice. Nelson Mandela, you know, talking South Africans, Nelson Mandela described how his anger was a core part of his ability ultimately to even have conversations with his oppressors. Um, right. what, what he started to recognize was that his Anger was signaling a sense of injustice that was very, very profound and very important. Um, but one thing that I just want to highlight here, because it connects with this Nelson Mandela example, is our emotions are data, not directives. So what I mean here is, you know, if, if I feel angry, that angry is data that something that's important to me is being threatened. It's not a directive. In other words, just because I feel angry doesn't mean that I need to have it out with someone. Just because I feel fearful when I'm having a difficult conversation doesn't mean, and I want to avoid the conversation, doesn't mean now I should avoid the conversation. So one of mm. the crucial distinctions is data, not directives. And what Nelson Mandela described in his work um, with really crafting the future of South Africa was how anger signaled his values and his need and his want for fairness and justice. And it was using the data of those emotions, but not being driven by the emotions that ultimately allowed him to step into the wisdom that we all have within us, which is, okay, this value is really important to me that this anger is signaling. How do I have a conversation 
um, how do I sit down in Nelson Mandela's terms? He spoke about sitting down with his oppressors. Right. I love that. Data, not directive. That's really powerful. I, I remember he, listening to Dave Logan, um, the author of Tribal Leadership. He was speaking at one of our events and he spoke about righteous anger and how righteous anger is anger that makes us that makes Martin Martin Luther King lead his marches or Nelson Mandela stand up for injustice. Righteous anger can be such a, a force to change the world. So I love that about anger. And I love what you said, data, not directive. Yeah. You know, I think this is this important part of um, where we think about emotions as being signals, not every, you know, not every signal do we need to like just obey if if we if we think about these signals, it's almost like you're driving down the street and you have your GPS giving you data about which way you should go. But ultimately, you are the one driving the car. So you can choose whether actually uh, I, I've decided I want to go there and not there. Um, we own our emotions. They don't own us. We own our stories. And so there's this really kind of powerful idea here, which is that there are these data that are really important that that help us to learn about ourselves and our values and what we care about. But they're not directives because emotions are just one part of us. As human beings, we also have our values and our intentions and our wisdom and our breathing and our centeredness. There's so much to us that's more than just that one emotional experience. And so um, emotional agility allows us to connect and show up to that normal emotional experience with a level of compassion and curiosity, uh, but without letting it call the shots. So then that, that brings us to two more, which, which I want you to help us understand. Contempt and sadness. What does contempt and sadness, what is the gift within them? What do they help us do? Well, contempt also can signal to us that like there is something going on in a relationship or in an interaction that we actually find at a foundational level to be anti-something that feels connected with us and who we are. You know, a lot of, ex this is again, this difference between data versus directives. We know that in relationships, expressed contempt actually signals the downfall of a relationship. So we know that when people express a lot of contempt for one another, um, that it actually is, is a forecasting of the dissolution of that relationship. How would you define the distinction between contempt and anger or hatred? I'm not sure I fully understand that. Yeah, so so contempt, contempt is um, often this, this sense that something feels in the relational perspective, anti. So contempt is, again, much more of a social emotion, and it's much more connected with what you're seeing in another person, whereas anger is often something that is experienced in a situation more broadly. You know, this, the, what is happening here in society feels wrong. Um, what is happening in this workplace feels wrong. Of course, often we can experience a range of these emotions all at once. You know, it's not like we one day experience contempt and the other day experience anger, we can sometimes have a mix of these emotions. Uh, you asked about sadness. You know, sadness is, um, is loss. Sadness is loss. Sadness is there is this thing that was important to me that is now lost. And it might be a dream or it might be a relationship or it might be 
hope, or it might be a sense of identity and self, but sadness signals that something that is important to us is somehow being lost to us. And it's it's really important connecting with it. Fishin, if I can just give an example of what I mean here, um, when I talk about emotions as data, not directives, you might say, well, like, well, what is what is a value that is being signaled by sadness? You know, because I, I I believe that that all of our emotional experiences, not every time we experience an emotion, but our emotions in general signal things that we care about, signal our needs. And so let me give you an example of what this means. Um, okay, if you experience boredom, boredom feels really shitty. Boredom right. feels horrible. Boredom feels stagnating. So what is boredom signaling? What is the need or value that boredom is signaling? It is very often signaling that you need more growth and learning in your life, that you don't have enough of it. And it's literally your body and your psychology helping you to, if you just slow down and feel and connect with that emotion, it's actually tapping you on the shoulder and letting you know of a change that is important. Um, Grief, you know, grief is love. Grief, grief is love looking for a home. You know, grief is, is um, the memory of a person or an experience saying, don't push me away. Recall what we had. Recall what was beautiful. Um, recall what I taught you. Bring me into your world. Loneliness. We all, over the past couple of years, have been experiencing very often at some some level of loneliness because physical distancing is not the same as emotional distancing. And you can be lonely in a crowd. You can be lonely in a room full of people. Um, so loneliness is signaling a greater need for intimacy and connection and is, again, just gently right. saying, see me. I, I love how we're breaking down the meaning, the gift within every emotion. Just going back a little bit to what you said about grief, you know, one of my favorite quotes, what you said reminded me of a quote on grief from WandaVision, that um, that Marvel uh, show that was on Disney+. And uh, the quote is, what is grief if not love persevering? I love that. Isn't that beautiful? It's, it's, so, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Um, and on the difference between contempt and anger, I, I just searched this and I pulled it up on Quora. And there was a lady here, Joshua Light, who defined it really well. And, and really, she said, anger is usually fleeting. It's where there's a sense of displeasure towards someone's actions and it's fleeting. Contempt is abiding, a sense of displeasure towards someone's values or to look down on someone. Yeah, I think I think that people can get very hooked in anger, you know, in a way that is not fleeting. Uh, and I think that people can also have anger against values that feel right. a level of disconnect. Um, but often, you, you know, litmus of the marker between contempt and anger is that contempt is often anchored around a relationship or an individual. And it may be the beliefs of the individual or what the individual is doing, the sense of visceral disconnect and visceral turning against what this person stands for. That's so interesting. Now, do you believe, I've, I've read this and I've heard many people say this, it's sort of the theory of learned emotions, right? The biochemistry that gives us excitement and anger are the same. We just interpret it differently depending on the situation. And we learn that 
from our parents? What are your views on ideas like this? It's a really interesting question. We know, for instance, uh, that all of us have what are called display rules. And the display rules, you know, what is meant by display rule? A display rule is the implicit, the kind of internal rule that we have mm-hmm. as, as human beings have about emotions. So if, for instance, you grew up in a family in which every time you were angry, your parents sent you to your room, like you frustrated, you angry, your parents sent you to your room. And it's like, we don't do anger here. You know, come out when you've got a smile on your face. What can happen over time is your ability to kind of pass out, oh, I am angry. And like, this is what anger feels like. And this is even why I'm angry becomes more and more muddied. Because what started to happen is if we think about our emotional skills as human beings, when we grow up in an environment in which all emotions are allowed, okay, all emotions, like we're not going to say there's no anger allowed. We're not going to say there's no sadness allowed. We're not going to say there's like all emotions are allowed. When we grow up in that environment, we as children learn crucial skills. Number one, we learn, gee, I was angry and now my anger's passed. I'm not angry anymore. So we learn, number one, that emotions pass, okay? Number two, we learn because emotions pass, we learn this kind of sense of, oh, emotions aren't to be feared. I I don't need to fear this emotion because emotions naturally pass. We also learn to be attuned to our emotions and boundaries and what those emotions are signaling. So we learn these crucial, literally lifelong skills through just being able to feel these normal emotions. When instead we have a parent, sometimes even with very good intentions, who jumps in and who says, Oh, you said, let's bake cupcakes. Let's, you know, like I feel uncomfortable with your sadness. So I want to kind of take your sadness away. What the meta message that you start getting is that sadness is bad, that only when I feel happy is this okay. And so what we start doing is we actually start becoming fearful of our difficult emotions. And we are unable, in the example that you gave, which is a beautiful one, to, to be attuned to what our emotions are telling us in ways that are compassionate and curious and healthy, the relationship between us and our emotions and even amongst our emotions becomes very muddied. And you see this often, like you'll see this often in, um, you know, if you've grown up in an environment where, for example, where a parent is very volatile, you may as a child feel that you being angry is too dangerous it's too dangerous. And so you become the peacemaker. And what that can lead to years later is when something is going wrong, when your values are being threatened, when you are being treated unfairly, either feeling very conflict avoidant, not being able to have the tough conversation, telling yourself you should be grateful, you know, making nice. So we start seeing these display rules come out in like very, very profound ways, both in parenting, but also in society. You know, a a narrative, a social narrative that tells us to be grateful all the time, a social narrative that tells us that we need to be positive and happy is avoidance wrapped up in rainbows and sparkles but it is an avoidance of 
the difficult emotions that are part of the fragility of life. So we got sidetracked a bit from our core topic, but what we discussed is still really valuable. In fact, I think it, it, it is immensely valuable. We just unwrapped the, the, the emotions that we often label as negative and, and showed the need for these emotions. You know, I, I only really started thinking about this when I watched that famous Pixar movie, Inside Out. Yes. Remember how in the movie, yes. everyone thought, the sadness character, the, the character that represented the emotion of sadness was the villain. And then yeah. towards the end, we realized the gift within sadness. What a beautiful movie. It's an incredible movie to teach people to, to deal with their emotions. But let's talk about the, the four concepts um, really quickly. And I know you go deeper in your book, but, but give us a taste. And the four concepts are showing up, stepping out, walking your why and moving on. Yeah. So first I want to highlight that like this isn't this like you know, step one checkbox, step right. two checkbox. They're really, they're really practices. Um, the first thing that I talk about is showing up. And what I mean by showing up is really an acceptance of all of our emotions. And with that, I would add all of our thoughts and all of our stories. Um, because every single day we have literally thousands of thoughts, emotions, and stories. A thought might be, I'm not good enough, or I'm unworthy. An emotion might be an experience of anger or stress or, you know, depletion, the kinds of things we've been talking about. A story, some of our stories were written on our mental chalkboards when we were five years old. Stories about who we are and whether we're worthy, whether we're good enough. And a world that values just being positive would tell you to like, only think positive things or to push aside all of those things and only be positive. But actually what that does is it gets us into this hustle that I spoke about where either what we do is we find ourselves bottling our emotions, we're pushing them aside because they now feel uncomfortable or brooding on our difficult emotions. We almost get stuck in them because we, we feel like we don't have the strategies to process them effectively. So the first part of emotional agility is this, this um, literally just ending the struggle by dropping the rope. Instead of hustling with whether you should or shouldn't feel something, you should or shouldn't be grateful, whatever, like end the struggle by dropping the rope. Stop judging whether you do or don't have emotions that are valid. Uh, every single emotional thought that you experience is just an emotion or thought. Um, there's nothing that needs in it to be completely belabored or, or um, gee, I'm not allowed that, or gee, that's wrong. Like it's just, it is what it is. So there's this, this kind of level of acceptance and showing up to those difficult emotions. And by acceptance, I don't mean passive resignation. I don't mean I'm sad. There's nothing I can do about it. I've just got to be sad. What I mean is opening your heart into the fact that these emotions contain very often gifts. They often feel uncomfortable, but they are often signaling things that we care about, our needs and our values. And we can only show up vision in this way if we yeah. extend a level of compassion to that experience. But what, about, what about things like anger, right? I mean, we can show up to anger. Yes, we can feel the anger, but what if that anger is hurting someone else? Let me give you two examples. I've got a very, in, like, not a very, intro, a more introverted son and a very extroverted daughter. And often when my son needs space and he's reading and he's like just in his own little world, my daughter climbs on his head, frustrates him, etc. Now, I can show up to my son's frustration with his baby sister. 
I can love it. I can see it. I can hold space for it. It doesn't mean that I'm endorsing his idea that he gets to give her away to the first stranger he sees in a shopping mall, okay? We own our emotions. They don't right. own us. And so I, I often think of this word vision as sawabona for those people who know South Africa, who grew up in South Africa. Sawabona is a Zulu word uh, that you hear every day on the streets, and it basically means hello. But there is a beautiful and powerful intention behind the word sawabona because Sawabona literally translated means, I see you, and by seeing you, I bring you into being. This is when I said earlier, my work is about seeing. I see you. Sawabona, I see you, and by seeing you, I bring you into being. Showing up is about sawabonaing a person. It's not about saying you get to act however you want with impunity. Uh, you, You get to just lash out with people at work. Again, our emotions are dead and not directives. The second example I maybe would give if if it's helpful is imagine you've got a child who comes home from school Mm -hmm. and who says, mommy, Jack didn't invite me to his birthday party. Now I'm not going to invite him to mine. Okay. He's the child is, is angry. Mm -hmm. So we all have heard that beautiful, powerful Viktor Frankl sentiment, this idea of between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And in that choice lies our growth and our freedom. So in my work, I talk about being hooked. When we are hooked, there's no space between stimulus and response. I'm angry, therefore I lash out. Jack didn't invite me, now I'm not going to invite him. So we literally take this emotion, this thought, this story, we treat it as fact and as a directive to action. Instead, the invitation is to, with your child, and I'm using this as a, as a kind of extended example, but actually the invitation is what we would do with ourselves. So instead, what we would do with our child is the child is upset and angry. So the first thing we want to do is we want to show up to that child, Sabobona. We want to show up. We don't want to say to the child, I'll phone Jack's parents. We want to show up to the fact that the child feels sad. But here's the thing. What value or need is being signposted by the child's anger? On the face of it, we could say the child's angry. But actually what's going on is this child is feeling rejected. and. One of the things we'll talk about a little bit later is the need to label emotions more accurately. The reason that I highlight this is because when you have a conversation with your child that says, I see your anger, I sawabona your anger, I see the rejection, I see the sadness. This is because friendship is important to you. So we can have now a conversation with our child. You know, what is rejection or anger or sadness in the situation signposting? It's signposting that relationship and friendship are important to this little being. You can have the most extraordinary conversation then about friendship is important to you. It seems like friendship is important. How do you want to be a friend to people at school? So what you're now starting to do is you're starting to mine these difficult emotions for the kinds of values and needs that they are signposting. And you're actually helping your child to develop their internal compass, their why, their 
sense of strength in themselves and who they are. That's beautiful, Susan. And I know we went really deep on that first point. In in, in the interest of time, because we have about eight minutes left, I was wondering if you can give us a, a real quick overview on stepping out, walking your why, and moving on. Yes, but yes. And I've already up. prefaced it. Yeah, no problem. So showing up is this is this acceptance with compassion. Right. Stepping out is our emotions are data, they're not directives. So what do we want to do? We want to create a little bit of distance between us and our emotions. I'll give you two quick strategies that we know are just very powerful. The first is that we often use very big labels to describe what we're feeling. We'll say something like, I'm stressed, okay, or I'm I'm anger. But actually, underneath the stress, you're not stressed, you're disappointed, or you are afraid or you feel unsupported or you depleted. So when we use a very big, broad brushstroke to label what we're feeling, our body and our psychology doesn't really know what to do with that. When instead we use accurate labels in the way that I described with this example with a child, what it literally does when you go from stress into what are two other options? What are two other things that I'm feeling here? I feel depleted and unsupported. What that already starts to do is it starts to ready your body and your psychology to move in the direction of how can I get more connection or care or rest or support. So we want to label our emotions accurately. Another thing that I really um, have found very powerful in my work is that we often use language. We'll say something like, I am sad. I am angry. And words matter. When you just say something like, I am sad, what you are basically doing is saying, I am all of me, 100% of me is sad. There's no space for my values, my intentions, my wisdom, my curiosity, my anything else. So one way we can create space is by saying, instead of I am sad, we notice the thought or the feeling or the story for what it is. I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad. I'm noticing this is my I'm not good enough thought. When we do this, we aren't avoiding. We're showing up to it, but we're creating distance. And the way that I would describe this just is that it's almost like when you say I am sad, it's like you, the, there is a cloud in the sky and the cloud is a sad cloud and you are the cloud. But you aren't the cloud. You are the sky. You are human and capacious and beautiful and complex enough to experience sadness and wisdom and joy all at once. Number three, walking your why. Your emotions signpost your needs and your values. So I've already given examples of this boredom, growth, loneliness Mm. might be intimacy and connection. And so when we connect more with the heartbeat of our why, the heartbeat of our values, it keeps us grounded in a very complex world. We're starting to build our internal core of what is important and who we want to be. And then the last part that I talk about, which is moving on, is trying to move through these emotions by taking action, you know, by recognizing that we actually make change in our lives, not through selling up and going and living on a wine farm necessarily, but very often by small changes, you know, quickly, you know, loneliness, signposting intimacy and connection, you might recognize that you are in a house 
with someone you love and yet you feel lonely and you walk past that person every day, they on their cell phone, you on yours, and there's, there's a shutdown. And so a tiny tweak, a small change that we can make is when I'm in the kitchen and I brush past this person to just reach out, to just reach out for, for an intimate hug. So what you're doing is you, you're using your emotions as data, but then you are stepping into the wisdom of what these emotions are telling us. And sometimes that wisdom is um, uncomfortable. You know, sometimes the wisdom is the wisdom that this relationship isn't working out. Sometimes the wisdom is the wisdom that I'm in the wrong job or the wrong career. And so there's a huge amount of courage that's asked of us in every moment because life's beauty and its fragility are interwoven. And so when we become open to all of our emotions, we start recognizing that we can walk with fear in the one hand and courage in the other, and that there is a bothness and an allowability of both of these at once. Thank you, Susan. This was such a deep, rich, powerful conversation. I really value you and your work. Please check out Susan's book, Emotional Agility. Also, look up her TED Talk. All of this information, her book, her TED Talk, are on the website, susandavid.com. And on that website, there's a really interesting quiz that you, you can take. And Susan, tell us, what, what do you get by taking this quiz on your website? So thank you so much. This was like a quick run through emotional agility. Obviously, there's so much more, but it's been beautiful. Uh, so the quiz is susandaber.com forward slash learn. The quiz takes mm -hmm. around five minutes and you get a free 10-page report from it. And this goes into the different aspects of emotional agility, connection with values and so on. And it's completely free. Thank you so much for joining us in the Mind Valley podcast. You've been an incredible inspiration. And uh, thank you all of you who are joining us live. For thank those you, of you everyone. Who, thank you. For those of you who enjoyed this episode, don't forget the website, susandavid.com. And if you want to go deeper into mastering yourself and your emotions, go to mindvalley.com and check out Mind Valley membership. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you. I'll see Thank you, you all. for the beautiful comments as well. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I'll see you all on the next iteration of the Mind Valley podcast. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley podcast. If you like the Mind Valley podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body, your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.